Well, good morning. My name is Zach Barton. I serve here at Hope Fellowship as the director of children's ministry. And if I haven't had the chance to meet some of you, uh, I'd love to chat with you at the back after the service. Uh, I remember uh, last time I was up here last summer was when we had that big giant plexiglass screen that was right here. And it was really weird because I could kind of see you, but I could also kind of see my own reflection. And I felt like I was in a fishbowl. So I'm glad that that's gone and I can see you and we can move forward. Uh, If you think back even further than last summer, uh, kind of at the time when the pandemic was really kind of setting in, there was a scare that we were going to run out of a very important item. Lots of people were rushing to the store and buying this up in big truckloads. And some people took the chance to sell those truckloads on the black market. Do you remember what it was? It was toilet paper, right? Yeah, people were buying truckloads and selling them and freaking out and running to the store. And why were we doing that? Why did we create a national toilet paper shortage? It's because we were worried. We were worried that if we didn't, if we didn't buy 600 rolls, then there wouldn't be enough left for us. And at that time, we had a lot of things to worry about. We had a lot of good things to worry about. And this morning, we resume our study in the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to that famous passage where Jesus talks about birds and flowers and not worrying about the future. There's a lot to be worried about in the world. It would be newsworthy if there wasn't. But in our text this morning, Jesus is going to speak into our worries over who will take care of us when we loosen our grip on our possession and our our money, when we decide to no longer be slaves to those things. He's going to offer us a better way, namely the way of life in his kingdom. And that's not to say that a lack of worry is your entrance exam into the kingdom, but rather he's going to tell those of us who are members of his already and not yet kingdom by faith, we have nothing to worry about. We have nothing to worry about our future because if God cares for the littlest of his creatures, how much more Will he care and provide for you, his children? Instead of worrying ourselves bare, kingdom citizens seek the inbreaking of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Which is to say that participating in God, the building, the kingdom that God is building, is better than worrying about the kingdom that you're in charge of. So if you have a Bible, Look with me at Matthew chapter 6. We'll be in verses 25 to 34 today. Matthew 6, 25 to 34. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the seat in front of you. We'll be on page 811. And if you're new to reading the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. And if you don't have one, we'd love to give you one. There are Bibles at the back counter. You can grab one on your way out today. We'd love for that to be our gift to you. So read along with me. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow, sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And we hear Jesus say, do not be anxious. And there are certainly some of us here this morning, perhaps, who have suffered or currently suffer with what we can call clinical anxiety. I love that we read Psalm 77 this morning as a lament for anxiety. And many of us, perhaps, have loved ones who suffer with anxiety disorders. I love that we read that text because it's so comforting. It was so comforting to me. But clinical anxiety is not what Jesus has in mind here. It's not what he's talking about. The context actually frees us from possibly mishearing Jesus as burdening those of us with anxiety disorders. So while Jesus isn't condemning anyone who suffers clinical anxiety, his words actually still apply to all of us because we all worry about our lives. Every Christian struggles to trust God with our life. Author Amy Simpson has written a book on the topic, and in her book she differentiates fear from anxiety and anxiety from worry. She says, in general, fear is a response to an immediate and known threat. Anxiety is a response to a possibility. So let's, let's say fear is walking through the woods and coming upon a bear. And let's say you live to tell the tale. And then later, you go walking through those same woods. Anxiety is helpfully telling you, there might be a bear here, I've seen one before. But worry is different. Here's what Simpson says. She says, unlike fear, worry is anticipatory. It's rooted in concern about something that may or may not happen. She says, rather than let go of fear, we sometimes decide to cling to it and embrace it pouring our energy into keeping it alive. That's the worry that Jesus has in mind here. So Jesus isn't telling people who suffer clinical anxiety to just cut it out. He's talking to all of us when we all worry about who will take care of us. So as we saw a couple weeks ago in Matthew 6, if materialism is the ditch on the one side, then worry is the ditch on the other side. When we let go of our grip on money and possessions, that's when worry can start to set in. Who's going to take care of me? I want you to see this command, do not worry, as an invitation to a certain kind of life. And keep in mind, too, that Jesus isn't looking at the poor 
and telling them to quietly accept their status in life. But rather, he's reminding people like you and me, who generally speaking, have what we need, and yet we still find ways to worry about our lives. So with those out of the way, let's look at some of the reasons Jesus calls his children not to worry. Look at verse 25. In the context of not laying up treasures on earth and not serving money and being slave to those things, he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they. As we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus continues to paint a picture for us what the kingdom of God looks like. He moves from the topic of our hearts and our treasures to how our hearts turn to worry. He said that where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And worry is a barometer of where your heart is. All of this has to do with our priorities and our heart. And we'll, we'll talk about that more at the end. But Jesus calls us to look around. He says, look outside. Birds don't participate in big agriculture. Their creator feeds them. Flowers don't worry about making their own clothes. And at this point, we might ask, you know, is Jesus saying that our responsibility to food and clothing aren't important? Is he saying, you know, let go and let God? The scriptures are full of exhortations to wisely plan for the future. So thinking let go and let God misses the point. The birds are flying around and finding food where they can take it. They're looking and they're finding. So he's not saying that. Jesus isn't giving us a proof for not worrying. He's giving us a picture of what his kingdom is like. So when Jesus says, look at the flowers and the birds, he's saying, look intently. He's looking at creation and pointing to the inherent wisdom that can be found if you'll just look at the stuff God made for you. And I do mean that he made it for you. The world is aflame with God's presence. This is what uh, one of my favorite theologians says. He says, all that exists is God's gift to man. And it all exists to make God known to man to make man's life communion with God. He's saying that God made all this so that you can know that he longs to be with you. And Jesus is saying the eyes of faith can see God's provision for you in creation. So in your mind's eye, think of a flower or think of a bird. That bird hasn't found seeds on the ground by worrying about it. God made her, he's provided for her. How will he not care for you when you are his ch child, when you are immeasurably valuable to him? And he has a pet, a pet name for all of us warriors. Look at verse 30. He says, If God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Literally, he calls us little faiths. And he's not talking to those who have no faith in God. He's talking about that space between faithful discipleship and unbelief. 
He's talking to each of us who have an ever-fluctuating flicker of faith. It's been said that a weak faith may lay hold of a strong Christ. Jesus looks at us little faiths, and he looks at us with pity. He looks at us with love and deep affection. But he also has the power to hold you. The Apostle Peter says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Just because we're little faiths doesn't mean that we should stay there. We move into deeper faith and deeper trust by casting our anxieties on Jesus. He's the only one who can take it. Cast your anxieties on him. Keep casting those same anxieties on him. And notice too that so much of what Jesus says here grows out of the Lord's prayer. He's urging his disciples, each one of us, to follow him in trust. At the heart of the Lord's prayer is that petition for daily bread. God knows that you need it. He knows what you need. He can be trusted with your needs. You can't trust God with your stuff. He hasn't laid claim to your stuff. He's laid claim to you. So trust him with your life. Trust him with your life because you're not ultimately the one who's in control. Look at verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Sometimes I think we wish Jesus would speak more plainly sometimes. And I think he's speaking pretty plainly here. In the grand scheme of things, we are so dependent on the hand of God in our lives. But even while we we have so very little control, we are immeasurably valuable to the king. We are so small, and we meet our eventual disappearance so quickly, like birds and flowers. And yet, the God of heaven finds you to be invaluable to him. Tim Keller says that Jesus looks at us and he thinks nothing would be worth losing them. Losing anything would be worth having them. That's scandalous, but it's true. That's who Jesus is. And only when you can admit that Jesus loves you like that can you start to see the worries for what they are. But Jesus isn't done. He has more to say. So far, he's given us a number of reasons not to worry. The birds and the flowers remind us that God cares for us because we are immeasurably valuable to him. In verse 27, he points out our lack of control to add even a single hour to our life. You can't add one page of your story by worrying about it. But Jesus looks at our worry, and he also sees something pagan about it. Look at verse 32. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God's children trust that their Father knows what they need, unlike the Gentiles or the nations, which is anyone who has no need of Jesus or anyone who has trust in anything other than Jesus. And commentators like to point out here that for Jesus to say that some behavior was particularly pagan would have been a forceful argument. He's done that before, when he said, don't pray like the pagans. But this isn't just a rhetorical device that Jesus is using. Because for him, the pagans were the Romans, 
who were found just north of Nazareth in a place called Sepphoris. In Sepphoris, wine and sex and leisure and luxury were a way of life. Maybe that sounds familiar. Or a place called Tiberias, where I read the, in, the traditional location of this Sermon on the Mount was in full view where Jesus was talking about. They were living examples of what the disciple of the kingdom was not to be. And he's not looking down his nose at those who are far from God. He's talking to his children. He's looking at us, he's looking at you and me, and he's saying, in this kingdom, in this family, we live differently. We don't run around worrying ourselves bare like someone who has no father in heaven. You do have a father in heaven. So live into these realities of this kingdom, of this family. He's saying, become who you are. You see, the kingdom and the Sermon on the Mount are all about family resemblance. God's children look like him. More and more, we look like him. We don't take Scrooge McDuck-style dives into piles of money, like we saw a couple weeks ago, and we don't chicken little when there's a toilet paper shortage. Instead, we're salt and light to the world. And remember that in Matthew 5, Jesus doesn't say you're supposed to be salt and light. He says you are salt and light. If your hope is in Christ, you are the light of the world. Jesus has already said what's true of you. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he's showing us what living in that kingdom looks like. Instead of worrying over what the future holds, or how we'll get along in this life, or what job we'll have, or what team we're going to be on, or whether or not people will accept us, or whether or not there will be war on our doorstep. Whatever it is, come what may, whatever the Lord has for each of us, we are his, and we are his light to the world. Friends, when we choose trust in Christ over worry, we tell a better story to our anxious neighbors and coworkers and friends. Pastor Rich Vietas in, in New York City says, in a world torn by anxiety, one of the greatest gifts followers of Jesus are called to offer is a simple, non-anxious presence. Not a presence removed from this reality, but a presence that refuses to be shaped by it. Jesus is commanding you not to worry. But he's also inviting you into a kingdom life of presence to God and to others and to yourself. So after all these reasons that Jesus says not to worry, he gives us an alternative. And that alternative is a vocation. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, but, or instead, instead of worry, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, there's, there's two main things happening here. There's two questions to be answered. What does it mean to seek the kingdom of God? And what does Jesus mean when he says that all these things will be added to us? Let's take, that la let's take that one right there, and then we'll come back at the end and look at what it means to seek the kingdom in our lives. So is Jesus saying that if we seek the kingdom, then we'll receive all things? 
will never be in want? I think it's important to know that Jesus isn't speaking to the individual you here. He's speaking to the plural, the collective you all. I'm from Texas, and back there, people say y'all. I don't do that. I worked that out of my vocabulary. But we, together, seek God's kingdom, and he adds food and drink and clothing in service to the kingdom. He's not promising us health or wealth. And it's interesting to know along those lines that in Luke's parallel account of this passage, he records Jesus as saying, sell your possessions and give to the needy. We can read Jesus as saying, you know, do this for me and I'll do this for you. And that might sound right until we remember the Christians in Ukraine who are suffering and in serious need right now. This isn't just some future promise for eternity. But in Luke's gospel, we see God's intent for the Christian community to be his instrument of caring for his people and the needy by sharing our goods. God calls us to be his hands and his feet, and he calls us to be the distribution system of goods for those who are in need. We are that distribution system. All of these will be added to you because God's people have been called to stand in the gap. When my family and I got COVID a while back, many of you stood in the gap for us. You brought us groceries and you brought us meals. And when we were worried about what we were going to do, God provided for us by your generosity. And it's that kingdom work, in that way, Jesus calls us to work for God's will and his kingdom on earth. And that's what Jesus means for us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And he's not talking about a certain courtroom kind of righteousness. He's talking about the rightness of living, the kingdom rightness of living, the higher righteousness than the Pharisees. Everything he's been saying up until now, being poor in the spirit, being meek, thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being peacemakers, being the light of the world, seeking the common good, loving our enemies, giving to the needy, learning to pray in the shape of the kingdom. All these ways, participating in the kingdom, that's the righteousness we should seek. And seeking God's righteousness and his kingdom go hand in hand. They're two sides to the same coin. Both kingdom and righteousness are about God's will on earth. And this higher righteousness that Jesus calls us to. It's not legalism. As Scott McKnight says, it's actually a confrontation with the messianic king who offers his citizens the way to live the gospel-drenched life of the kingdom. That's what the kingdom is all about. It's living out the gospel in your life, in your work, in your speech, in your parenting, in your relationships. It's being poured into a mold. And our lives take on the shape of the gospel. It's living in light of Jesus's life and death and resurrection, and then aiming our lives toward God's future, toward God's tomorrow, which is the kingdom of God come to earth one day. We seek the kingdom that is to come because in Luke, Jesus tells his disciples that the 
the kingdom was already among them. It was in their midst. God's coming kingdom is in your midst today. This entire passage culminates here on the kingdom. Worry is kingdom secession. But living the gospel today in God's mission is kingdom participation. So, how do we seek God's already and not yet kingdom? Well, Jesus has been giving us tools in the Sermon on the Mount so far. We can pray for God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Philippians 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the God of peace, which, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We can seek God in prayer. We can seek God in his word. We can share our possessions freely and we can give for the good of all. We can fast and we can love our enemies. We can join God in his mission to bring his kingdom on earth by being his ambassadors, as we saw last week. As ambassadors, we bring our king's message to our friends, our family, and our coworker. We have that ministry of reconciliation to the world. Parents, you're raising up sons or daughters to be partakers and participants in the kingdom of heaven. Drop in volunteers. You bring God's nearness to those who are cast out. Audiovisual team and the band, you help us lift our hearts to God every week. And my children's ministry volunteers, you bring the kingdom to those who are so often overlooked. In all these ways, we can seek God's will and we can seek his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We must be about these kingdom ways. But there's a way to misunderstand seeking God's kingdom as investing in only the overtly spiritual things in life. Seeking God's kingdom must include all these things like praying and fasting and sharing our faith. Seeking God's kingdom is at least those things, but it's not only those things. Because if your job isn't primarily about spiritual things or related to spiritual things, you're not out of luck or off the hook. And you're not relegated to only seeking the kingdom when you come and do church things. In seeking the kingdom, the New Testament talks about it in a number of ways. The New Testament says that we can announce it, we can receive it, and we can bear witness to it. But the one thing it says, it doesn't say we can do, is build it. Only God builds his kingdom. We haven't been called to build God's kingdom, but we have been called to build for God's kingdom. And building for God's kingdom is a helpful category that I've borrowed from New Testament scholar Tom Wright. And he argues that if we take 1 Corinthians 15 seriously, when Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. If we take the resurrection seriously, and Paul, when he says your labor is not in vain, as Curtis said last week, nothing 
is trivial. Anything you do in this life, in the light of the love of God, is a meaningful pathway to seek the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Tom Wright sketches what it means to seek the kingdom and to build for the kingdom in this way. Here's what he says. He says, you're not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself. You are accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. He says, every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God, and delight in the beauty of his creation. Every act of care and nurture, and certainly every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, or builds up the church, or embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of these things, all of this, will find their way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. Your labor is not in vain. When our life together, in the collective sense, and your life is lived for the gospel in God's perfect coming kingdom, we are in a very real sense building for God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying that when you reorient your priorities to the kingdom, whatever vocation you have, you become who you are. And this business of worry, it gets put in its proper place. It gets seen for what it really is. Worry is kingdom secession. It's walking out on the kingdom, on the king. But seeking the kingdom is heavenly participation. If you're here this morning and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, and all this talk of kingdom and heavenly participation seems kind of flimsy, you might Say to yourself, I'm a pretty good person. I care about people and I care about my community. Why do we need all this talk about the kingdom? Why can't I just pursue love and justice and peace without Jesus? All those things are desirable qualities for society. We need all of those things. But those things are actually born out of God's good design for human flourishing in the world. And could it be that when you seek love and justice and peace in the world, you're actually just seeking the kingdom without the king? We are saying that Jesus is so good, he is the only way to true love and justice and peace and acceptance, and that all those things find their fulfillment in his life and death and resurrection. To be clear, The kingdom of God is not a political stance. It's a participation in the renewal of all things. If you're hearing all this today and you're just not sure, I'm glad that you're with us. Please stick around. We'd love to tell you about this king who came from heaven for you and the renewal of all things. Finally, In verse 34, Jesus gives us a proverb to drive home his point. He says, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, 
For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is kind of refreshing. I kind of like that. Jesus is a realist. He understands what it means to be human. He understands that we are weak and we worry about our lives. And if you're thinking, yeah, well, you you just don't know what I have to worry about. You're right. I don't. But Jesus does. And he's the one telling us, don't worry. He knows that the best thing for us is for us to take seriously a resolute rejection of worry in our lives. He knows that sometimes we will look forward to tomorrow and sometimes we will worry about what tomorrow brings. We've all spent two years worrying about what tomorrow might bring. What new thing is happening tomorrow? It's been COVID. Last summer, it was racial injustice. And now it's war in Ukraine. And yet, he says not to worry about tomorrow. He commands us to not worry. It will have its own problems waiting for us then. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. I'm a big fan of Wendell Berry, who is a poet and a conservationist from Kentucky. And a couple of years ago, uh, my brother-in-law got me a print of one of the final lines of one of his poems. And it's, it's hanging over our dining room uh, table at home. And here's what it says. Let tomorrow come tomorrow. Not by your will is the house carried through the night. Order is the only possibility of rest. What does Wendell Berry mean? He's clearly thinking about our passage in Matthew. He's saying, like Jesus, tomorrow will come, and it will come with tomorrow's problems. It will come with tomorrow's set of worries, and you can't reach them today. Your life is so abundantly important to God, but you can't carry the house through the night. Psalm 127 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And yet, and so, order is the only possibility of rest. He's talking about our priorities, the order of our priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Rest only comes when our priorities are rightly ordered. Worry comes when our priorities are out of whack. Seek first the kingdom. Our king has given us a charge. Don't worry. Instead, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you took Jesus' words seriously here? Can you imagine what your life would look like if you rejected worry and lived for the kingdom instead? Dallas Willard, who uh, wrote the book The Divine Conspiracy, said this, What hinders or shuts down kingdom living is not the having of such provisions, but rather the trusting in them for future security. We have no real security for the future in them, but only in God, who is present with us each day. Don't forget, friends. Christ gives us this mission to seek his kingdom, 
But at the very end of Matthew, the very last words of this gospel, he gives us a promise. He says, behold, I am with you always. Jesus is good, friends, and he's with us. Don't worry. Let's seek the inbreaking of God's kingdom together. In a couple of moments, we'll respond by singing. You can uh, put the connect card in the, in the basket as it goes by. We'd love for you to fill out the prayer requests. We'd love to pray for you this week. Let's pray. Spirit, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would write it on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.